Tonight on Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Before and after pictures of indigenous children reveal Native American clothing replaced by starched Victorian dress, the students were severely punished if they spoke their language, practiced their customs or religion. They were given English names, and the first part of the transition was to cut their hair. It's like this overt symbol of the complete erasure of your indigeneity. So I got really interested in this idea of activating the city itself with the images and using the downtown landscape as a, a gallery. Good evening. Welcome to Rhode Island PBS Weekly. I'm Pamela Watts. I'm Michelle San Miguel. Our stories tonight follow both the tragic and often hidden histories people endured and those who are working to bring the truth to light. We begin in the late 1800s with a practice that lasted almost a century. Native American children taken from their families and forced into Indian boarding schools by the federal government. Many were only toddlers. The suffering caused by the often brutal assimilation has resulted in multi-generational trauma for indigenous people such as the Narragansetts of Rhode Island. As we first reported back in February, the stories of the federal Indian boarding schools are just some that will now have the place and the space to be told at a new Tomaquag Museum being built in Kingston. real goal was to take the land. Um, if they couldn't exterminate us through genocide and warfare, they were going to exterminate us through forced assimilation. Forced assimilation was part of a land grab tactic for early settlers, and it was an attempt by the U.S. government to eradicate the identity of Native Americans. In the late 1800s, little children were taken far away from home to Indian boarding schools and were routinely abused. Many died of neglect and disease. The practice ran for decades. Loren Spears, known in Narragansett language as Makasuni Pashao, meaning moccasin flower or lady slipper, is director of the Tomaquag Indian Memorial Museum, as well as a writer and educator. That education on the surface seems like a good thing, but in the case of the boarding schools, the industrial schools, the religious boarding schools that came before the federal system, these were detrimental to indigenous children, families, and communities, and that literally they were acts of violence against the indigenous peoples and their nations. And the ultimate goal was to take the land, but also to strip us of our identity, our culture, our communities, our nations. It has been branded the hidden history, one that is being acknowledged in exhibits such as this held recently at the University of Rhode Island. A poignant part of the display, these child-sized handcuffs. When you saw these handcuffs for the first time, what went through you? You know, it was visceral, tiny children with these tiny handcuffs. And I always think of it like this. I have a three-year-old grandson um, and the idea of him being ripped from his family and community and being handcuffed in that way just like is 
so extraordinarily painful. Spears says she first heard about Indian boarding schools from her family. I learned it first through our stories, through our oral histories, through the understanding that these structures were structures of slavery. You can pretty it up with words like indentured servitude, but when people are taken as young children and never return to your community until they're 30 or more, that's slavery. They kept them even during the long summer months um, by putting them with white families to act as domestic help or to do laboring jobs. And that was a way that the boarding schools actually raised money to keep these kids here. So they've literally stolen you and now they're forcing you to work in order to keep stealing you and keeping you there. Spears says many Indian parents were threatened if they didn't relinquish their children or tried to hide them. Some parents who resisted were imprisoned. Think about what it's like when you're a parent and your child's been stolen from you and you were not able to protect them. What does that do to your heart and to your psyche? And Spears says once their children were taken off the reservation, the cultural cleansing began. These before and after pictures of indigenous children reveal the process. Native American clothing was replaced by starched Victorian dress. The students were severely punished if they spoke their language, practiced their customs or religion. They were given English names. But the first part of the transition was to cut their hair. Our cultural ways, your hair is like your life's blood. It's, it's, it represents the past, the present, the future. This is why this is so triggering. It's like this overt symbol of the complete erasure of your indigeneity. This erase and replace model was first started in 1879 by Richard Pratt, a former military officer. Among the thousands of children who were held at the Carlisle Indian Industrial School in Pennsylvania, old records indicate there were Narragansetts, as well as members of other southern New England tribes, Wampanoags, Poconocets, and Pequots. One of my uncles, he's not Narragansett, he's um, from another tribal nation, but he was literally taken, he and his siblings, from their family and community. And he has not only the emotional scars, but the physical scars to show for it. Spears says those scars have marred the lives of Native Americans for generations. The violence of that theft of your, your childhood, the theft of your cultural knowledge, the theft of your language and your relationships with your family and community. And how that when you think of these lateral traumas today of alcoholism and drug abuse and poverty, that these are all connected. The interconnections of the story in this exhibition are too large to display in the tiny Tomaquag Museum. It has been in existence for 60 years and is currently housed in what was once a country church deep in Exeter. The idea is to uh, re-indigenize the landscape in, in different kinds of ways. Now in Kingston, a new extensive museum complex will be built on 18 acres of land owned by URI. Spears points out it is a place that has always been homeland to Narragansetts. All of this land that we now know as Rhode Island is Narragansett land. We wanted it to still feel rural. We wanted to be near water like the Chapuxet River and the Whitehorn Brook. The campus will have four buildings, the main museum building, 
the Education Center, the Indigenous Empowerment Center, and the Archive Collections Research Center, which we'll call the Belongings Research Center. Spears also envisions gardens, hiking trails, and a replica village where everyone is welcome to come learn. She says education is the first step towards reconciliation. You know, if we want to create equity um, and undo some of the injustice that has taken place, we have to also create equity um, through education. We have to create equity through um, job training and development. We have to create equity in acknowledging and healing from the pains of the past. Yet the lessons of the past have not always helped heal the wounds inflicted upon Native Americans. Spears says the Narragansett Nation was detribalized in the 1800s and not recognized until 1979. It was a slight she felt even as a little girl. Can you tell me what it was like for you to be a Narragansett in Rhode Island? There was two things happening. When I was with my family and my community, there's such a pride and honor and respect to our culture and our community, and then there was the outside community that didn't seem to understand. So when I was in my fifth grade classroom, I had a history textbook that said I didn't exist right there in the textbook. So how, how do you, as a fifth grader, understand that? How do you um, process that information? How do you stand up for yourself in the classroom? It's very difficult. My daughter is a college student now, and her first Native Studies course, the professor had them making up fictional tribes. So there's still such a lack of understanding and a lack of knowledge and, you know, perpetuation of stereotypes and generalizations and just misinformation. Even that, today. Even today in the 21st century. And teachers were taught it wrong when they were in school and they're regurgitating that misinformation and passing it forward to new generations. And most of the time, only talking about it in the mythological sense of the quote unquote first Thanksgiving as their way of, of bringing up indigeneity in their classrooms. Spears hopes the new Tomaquag Museum programs will help educate the educators. It gives us the opportunity to work with professors and really um, build their their knowledge around local indigenous history and culture and the intersectionality of that. It also gives us an opportunity to work with students so that we can hopefully go forward and this next generation isn't as misinformed as the last several generations have been. Spears believes despite the loss of family and freedom during the time of Indian boarding schools, some Native Americans still flourished by using their education and the skills they learned there. For example, Former female sachem of the Narragansetts, Princess Redwing, who was sent to a Quaker school. She was an educator and an advocate um, her whole life, um, you know, and a culture bearer and passing forth traditional knowledge. So she was able to, as many people that were, if you will, subjugated under the umbrella of boarding schools, in one way was able to then take that knowledge and utilize that to support indigenous initiatives, including, you know, speaking on behalf of indigenous rights at the United Nations. Spears says the new Tomaquag Museum will better preserve the rich history and culture of Narragansetts, including a fully fluent language. It is being revived today in greetings, storytelling, and prayer. It translates in part. Today, Creator, we come to you with a quiet heart and we give thanks for all our beloved relations. We give thanks for those that persevered and 
survived so that we could be here today. This summer, during his pilgrimage to Canada, Pope Francis begged forgiveness of Indigenous people. He apologized for Catholic missionaries who contributed to the abuse and cultural genocide of Native children at church-run boarding schools. Up next, through a blend of photojournalism and art, Providence's Mary Beth Meehan has built a career examining overlooked and misunderstood communities, from traditional images in newspapers to reimagining where and how her art can be displayed. Meehan's career evolved in ways that even she could not have predicted. Contributing reporter Bill Bartholomew sat down with Meehan back in June of 2021 to learn more about her process, motivation, and strong desire to go behind the myths and explore the lives of people that oftentimes society completely ignores. I mean, the people that have brought me into their homes and shared themselves with me have been, I mean, just life-changing from day one. Just an honor that so many of these amazing human beings have, have opened themselves to me in order to teach me something. Photojournalist and artist Mary Beth Meehan has, through vivid and often haunting images, explored culture and visibility, telling the stories of people and communities that are misrepresented or misunderstood. There, there's thousands of them. When I think about them all, and I try to remove them in my mind, like what if I'd gone through life without having entered those spaces? My life would be so, the, the, the poverty, there's a, there's a kind of poverty of spirit that I'm so glad I didn't have to walk a path in that, in, in that way. From her days as a newspaper columnist to a series of large-scale photo installations printed on vinyl banners in cities around the country, Meehan has sought to bust the myths that often defined places and people. Meehan grew up in Brockton, Massachusetts, a small city located about 40 miles from Providence. Back then, Brockton was a typical Northeast working-class community of mostly Irish heritage, and the city would ultimately play a critical role in her artistic identity. But Meehan says it was when she was in junior high school and an uncle of hers had gone to New York City to pursue a career in photography and film that she first began to see her future. I remember just being a kid and being so entranced with how you could look into a picture and really imagine these worlds and try to inhabit these worlds and they could be from from anywhere you know and that you could come back to it again and again and it didn't change but you could always see new things into it new aspects but it would take several years before Meehan realized that photography could be much more than a hobby hey wait this is something you could build a life around so I didn't really know anything about art school or journalism school or anything like that, but I enrolled in a photojournalism program at the University of Missouri in a master's program and got introduced to the world of journalism and um, in, in the world of photojournalism, which entailed, you know, just really being in the world, like boots on the ground, trying to understand what people's lives were like ringing doorbells, interviewing strangers, getting really comfortable with this role of seeing myself as this kind of portal, um, a, a kind of portal that I could collaborate with people that I didn't know to try to, to try to amplify stories that I thought were important to be heard. Meehan eventually ended up in Boston, where she began doing freelance photography for the New York Times and the Boston Globe, as well as developing her own projects, including one focused on Boston Italians 
who were tracing their heritage in Italy. I started going back and forth between Italy and Boston to talk about immigration and how, you know, it's not just a one-way journey, but people retain their connections and it's kind of this back and forth and this, this consciousness of being an immigrant and what you carry with you when you come to this country. Meehan became a staff photographer for the Providence Journal, ultimately landing her own weekly column if you talked about a place like Central Falls, it was usually about crime or corruption. Or if reporters from the Journal Newsroom went to South Providence, it was because a crime had occurred. But I understood having grown up in Brockton with immigrant people and um, that really having been my identity, I mean, I come from immigrants, um, that there were other stories that needed to be told and other ways of looking at those communities. After a move to Providence and a break from her work to focus on raising her children, Meehan decided to return to her roots in a big way. My first impulse was to go back to Brockton because after I had left, what had happened was, you know, it had been 15, 20 years since I had lived there. And what I was hearing was that my old white Irish uncles were seeing the city change. You know, the, econ the shoe factories had closed, the economy had shut down. Immigrants were still coming, but they were now coming from Cape Verde and Haiti. Meehan felt compelled to begin photographing members of the Brockton community. How do I make a body of work that tries to reconcile what's left of the old, what's here of the new? And as I was making that work, it occurred to me that there was something wonderful about being able to show that work in a museum or a gallery, but there was also something extractive about it. Like, why did I want to take the work out of the city and show it in a, sp in a space which by nature would be necessarily, most likely an upper middle class white space? Um, Brockton, since I left, became a majority minority city, you know? And um, so I got really interested in this idea of activating the city itself with the images and using the downtown landscape as a, a gallery, a physical gallery. In 2011, these images were blown up and displayed as huge vinyl portraits in the heart of the city. Meehan was then approached by Bert Krenka, the Providence artist and founder of the AS220 Gallery and Art Space. Krenka wanted her to do something similar in Providence. By 2015, her Providence portraits were part of the city's first arts festival. It wasn't long before Meehan was getting calls from people around the country who wanted her to come to their city and do portraits. One of the first invitations came from two gentlemen from a small southern town about 40 miles from Atlanta. So that was just overwhelming. I mean, what did I know about the South? You know, I was this white liberal northerner who thought I knew everything there was to know about the South and, right. uh, and about the North. So... I went and it was hard and I was really nervous because, you know, I had only ever, ever really worked deeply in New England, which I felt I knew. I understood these layers of immigration. I'd lived it and loved, loved it. Shortly after starting her Southern effort, she was approached by a professor at Stanford University who was concerned about what he described as the mythology surrounding Silicon Valley. There's definitely an overlap between journalism and art in that you're serving as a mirror for a community and you kind of started to figure out how to walk in both of those spaces. Old colleagues in photojournalism have now said, you know, this isn't, this isn't journalism anymore, this is advocacy. Or, well, this isn't fine art because your roots are in journalism. And so I've just decided that I don't care what anybody calls it because um, I just think that we're all trying on some level, we all have this urge to reflect back what we're seeing. And so much of what you've, your, your work has been about 
myth-busting, so to speak, about the human condition, but also about environments and just stigma. Well, I mean, I think that what we need to really name is that, for example, you know, white people in this country have for 400 years made a concerted campaign to represent the black community in really derogatory and um, just derogatory ways and um, distorted horrible ways and that has been intentional and that we have all ingested messages uh, disseminated by people in power in order to justify their own power over whole huge groups of people so what we have learned through imagery and through uh, the people who have claimed the right to to define the narratives has not been neutral it has been excessively negative in many cases. So how do we, particularly as a white practitioner, how do we push against those narratives without reinflicting more damage, reinscribing those same um, power dynamics, getting it wrong, even with the best intentions, um, focusing so solely on the symptoms of the corrupt system that we end up reinscribing those symptoms as conditions of these communities when in fact we're not looking at the systems at all. In what Meehan says is her instinctual pursuit of authenticity, she has touched the lives of countless people from all walks of life. What do you want people to take away from your body of work when it's written in the stars, so to speak? Oh God, is it gonna <laughs> get written in the stars? I hope that they um, notice what they've been taught to think about the people around them, yeah. how those assumptions are having an impact on their interactions in a day-to-day -day way, and to take a chance to bust through those myths or bust through those assumptions that they're carrying and interact with the world in an authentic way. Our thanks to Bill Bartholomew. Finally tonight, in our continuing series, Window on Rhode Island, we revisit Linden Place, once the home of the DeWolfs. They were the largest slave trading family in U.S. history. In recent months, institutions across the country have taken a hard look at their relationships with racial justice. And so, too, has Linden Place. Behind me is Linden Place Mansion. It's a federal style home built in 1810 by George DeWolf. George and Charlotte DeWolf both came from very prominent wealthy families here in Bristol. George was very much a wheeler, dealer, opportunist here in town in terms of business. We always like to think of the northern states being sort of the liberators, um, the ones who sort of worked um, against slavery, the abolitionist societies, when in reality the transatlantic slave trade involved every bit of the Rhode Island economy in the 18th and early 19th centuries. The Dual family owned many ships and they also owned the town banks. They would take these ships, they would load them up with rum, which was made here in Bristol, and they would sail to Africa, specifically Ghana, what they called the Gold Coast. And they would take that rum and they would trade for enslaved peoples 
to be brought on their ships to plantations in Cuba. It was a very brutal journey. Rum was in very high demand. Rhode Island rum in particular was very sought after. This was a huge moneymaker for the DeWolf family. In 1825, George had a rush of some really bad luck financially. He was left um, basically bankrupt, but because the entire town's fortunes were invested in the DeWolf business ventures, the entire town of Bristol basically went bankrupt. And so George, with his wife Charlotte and their children fled from Linden Place. Um, they rode to Boston where they caught the first ship to Cuba and they went and lived out the rest of their lives at that Cuban sugar plantation. People woke up the next day and the banks were closed and they wanted an explanation of where their money was. This led the town of Bristol into a financial depression that lasted decades. Linden Place has been operating as a historic house museum for about 30 years. So when COVID took place in, in late winter last year, it really gave us at Linden Place a chance to step back, look at our story, um, think about what we're doing well, but more importantly, what are we not doing well? What are we not talking about? We are not talking about the contributions of African Americans to Bristol history and to the history of this house. Um, so we really set off investigating and researching stories that we weren't aware of before. My name is Lynn Smith and I'm a volunteer here at Linden Place. So I do a little historical research through the census, through birth records, through marriage records we started to build a little bit more robust story. Daniel Tanner was an entrepreneurial black man, free black man, who ran a business right here in the conservatory of Linden Place, a barber shop. In some of the southern plantations, it was quite common for the wealthy plantation owners to have what was known as a waiting man. It was a black slave, a manservant, who was sort of his personal valet, made sure that his clothes were perfect, his coiffure was perfect. That tradition sort of migrated north and barbers became well-known black barbers for the excellence of their skill. So we know that Daniel Tanner was probably the great-grandson of a local slave, Scipio Tanner. But interestingly, he was much more than just a black barber. We found a story in the local Bristol Phoenix, for example, that he started the Excelsior Cornet Band and was quite proud that he and his band marched in the very famous Bristol Fourth of July parade every year. This whole adventure of delving into not only Daniel Tanner's history, but that of his family um, and their connections to Bristol, their connections to Newport, we feel will open up a whole new side of this mansion's history that no one knew about. Our thanks to Susan Battle and Lynn Smith. That's our broadcast this evening. Thank you for joining us. I'm Michelle San Miguel. I'm Pamela Watts. We'll be back next week with another edition of Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Until then, you can visit us online to see all of our stories and past episodes at ripbs.org weekly, or listen to our podcast, available on all your favorite audio streaming platforms. Thank you. Good night.